Bibles with you. Going to be in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27 is our text for today. Famous story of Jesus calming a storm. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23, please hear this public reading of God's word. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a privilege, as always, to gather with your people and to sing and to open your word and to hear your word read. And we come to this incredible passage of Scripture. It is brief, but it is powerful and it is packed. And I pray that you would help us to be able to apply uh, what we learn in this passage to our lives. I pray that when trials hit our lives, I pray it wouldn't be said of us that we have little faith. I pray that our faith would truly be strengthened today. And I pray that when trials do hit, our faith would be strong and we wouldn't give in to fear and anxiety and worry, but that we would trust you, that you have good and wise purposes for the storms that you bring into our lives. And I pray that we would see the glory and the majesty of Jesus in this passage. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a well-known story in the Bible. If you grew up in church, you likely have been familiar with this story since you were a child it is told in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke's gospel, so I'll be referencing at least Mark's gospel today. You get some inf- different information in those other accounts. Uh, a lot of people love this story. R.C. Sproul said this is one of his favorite stories uh, in the Bible, and if you've read his book, The Holiness of God, he talks about this story in that book, or if you've ever seen his talk, The Holiness of Christ, he talks about this story. He uses Mark's gospel in The Holiness of God, and if you've never seen it or never read his chapter on the holiness of Christ, it is fantastic. It is stirring. I went back and was listening to some of it this week on the holiness of Christ and absolutely captivating teaching when Sproul teaches on this story from Mark's account. And I, I think I love this story more because of Sproul, his love for this story. Uh, when our church first started, we had something called discussion groups that met every Thursday. We had a couple of different discussion groups going and we would meet in someone's home from this church. And the format was pretty basic. Uh, we, would, we would start with at our, our discussion group, we started with sort of an icebreaker question, get to know you question, your name, and then some, some random question, and then we would just get, get started. You could basically, it was a free-for-all, any question, any topic, as long as it pertained to the Christian life and to the Bible. And then everyone else would seek, seek to try to answer that question as faithfully and as biblically and as helpfully as we could. Well, our discussion group, we, had, uh, we did the icebreaker question or the get-to-know-you question for over a year straight. I mean, we, we didn't stop doing it. And if you're an introvert, this is your favorite part of the entire time, would be this part, doing that icebreaker question. And after a while, though, after 20 or 30 times, you have to start getting kind of creative to come up with a new question. And this particular week, if I remember correctly, I don't remember exactly the question, but I think the question was, you know, you say your name, and then say, if you could be an object, if you could be an object, what object would you choose to be? Strange question. Again, we've, we've used so many of the, of the normal ones. So if you could be an object, like the Eiffel Tower, the Empire State Building, if you could be an object, what would you choose to be? Well, they started answering on the other side of the room. It was coming around to me on this side of the room. And I remember, I think I got my answer pretty much right away. And once I had my answer, I was certain that somebody in the room was going to steal my answer. But of course, that was not going to be the case. No one was going to take my answer. My answer was going to be accused of being weird later. So my answer was not going to be taken. I thought someone was going to take my answer. Came to me. No one's taking my answer. I thought, okay, good. So I get to give my answer, said my name. And I said, if I could choose to be an object... 
I would choose to be the boat that Jesus was in when he calmed the storm. That's what I would choose. And I know that this was a weird and strange answer. I think it was the most unique answer in the room. But let me see if I can defend my answer for just a minute. Why would I choose to be this boat in this story, Matthew chapter 8? Well, this is why I would choose to be this boat. Because I would have loved to have seen this event unfold in real time. I mean, I would have absolutely loved to have seen this. We know from Mark's gospel that Jesus is teaching in parables all day long. And it says in Mark's gospel, on that day when evening had come. So the same day he's been teaching all day, he's exhausted from doing ministry. He tells the disciples, let's go to the other side. So they take him in the boat, they begin to cross, other boats are, are with him. We know from Luke's gospel that he falls asleep as they are crossing over. We know from Mark's gospel he has a cushion. It's a, an eyewitness account, obviously. He's got a cushion, he's asleep on this cushion. And then you have this big windstorm comes down, massive storm, waves crashing over the boat. The disciples, some of them seasoned fishermen, are panicked. They're fearing for their lives. They're at the end of their rope. They race to Jesus. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And Jesus, this is what I would have loved to have seen. Jesus calmly wakens up. He turns to them and says, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. And then the Son of God stands there before this massive storm, and he speaks to the storm. We know from Mark's gospel, peace, be still. And immediately, the response of the cosmos, instantaneously, the, the sea is like glass. Sproul said there's not a zephyr in the air, and you have this eerie silence. Oh, man, it would have been incredible to have been there on this day and to seen this event unfold. But we get to look at this incredible story today. I have four points For my sermon, I'll go ahead and give them to you now at the outset. Point number one will be the calm before the storm. Point number one is the calm before the storm. Point number two will be the disciples' response to the storm. The disciples' response to the storm. Point number three will be Jesus' response to the storm. Point number three, Jesus' response to the storm. And point number four will be the disciples' response to Jesus. Point number four will be the disciples' response to Jesus. So point number one, the calm before the storm, our text doesn't have much, but verse 23, and I'll read some of 24, Matthew 8, 23, and when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So not much here in our text for the calm before the storm. They simply get into the boat, his disciples follow him, and boom, there's this great storm on the sea. That's not much to go on, but Mark's gospel, let me read to you from Mark's gospel. You don't have to turn there, but Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4, Verse 35 and 36, we know again he's been teaching in parables all day for Mark's gospel. This is what Mark's gospel says. On that day, so the same day he's been teaching, when evening had come, we know it's in the evening, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. This seems to be like a normal day in the life of Jesus. He teaches all day. He's likely healing people. It's evening has come. He's likely exhausted from doing ministry. And Jesus is the one, important note, he says, let us go across to the other side. Jesus, it's Jesus' idea to cross over. The disciples obey Jesus. They get into the boat. They take Jesus. They begin to cross. It's likely a very peaceful beginning to their crossing. This is the calm before the storm. Now, is there any application that we can take from this first point, the calm before the storm? And you may be thinking, I don't think there's much application that you can take from that simple little bit. Well, I think there is some application, and I'm going to cheat slightly by going into the storm a little bit, but I think there's some application here. Again, it is important to note that Jesus is the one who says, let us go across to the other side. The disciples obey Jesus. They do not disobey. They don't say, we're tired. We're worn out, Jesus. Let's stay here. We don't want to cross over. No, they obey Jesus. In obedience to Jesus, they take him in the boat. They begin to cross over. What's the big deal about that? Well, it's because of their obedience to Jesus that they find themselves in the middle of a storm. It's that they're walking in obedience and they find themselves in the middle of a storm. They're not in this predicament because they had been bad. They're not in this predicament because they had made foolish choices. No. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. Sometimes we find ourselves in difficulties because of our own sin and foolishness. That is certainly true. The Lord will discipline those he loves. He will not let us remain comfortable in our sin. Ferguson continues, but there are times 
when the Lord himself leads us into difficulties. Contrary to the picture sometimes painted of the Christian life, Jesus did not solve all the disciples' problems and protect them from trials and perplexities. In fact, sometimes Jesus led them quite deliberately into trials, into storms, into suffering. Again, sometimes he will discipline us when we're in our sin, or all the time he's going to discipline us if we're in our sin. Think about Jonah. He was to go to Nineveh. He rebels. He doesn't want to go. He flees the scene. What does God do? He brings a storm upon Jonah in his rebellion. But the disciples are walking in obedience, and it's in their obedience that God brings this storm. So sometimes God brings storms when we disobey him. But sometimes he leads us directly into storms when we are walking in obedience to him. And of course, he does this all for our good. God, for his own good and wise purposes, will lead us directly into storms. Jesus could have easily prevented the storm. He could have given them a safe passageway of cross. But out of love for them, we'll talk about this later, out of love for them, he brings this storm. This storm is going to reveal to them their lack of faith. It's going to reveal the majesty and the power of Jesus in a profound way. So that's the first application. Second application would be likely they began a peaceful journey across the Sea of Galilee. Likely there's not a storm cloud in the sky. And they just calmly, they're thinking, this is going to be peaceful. We're away from the crowds, peaceful. But all of a sudden you have this massive storm hits out of nowhere. So what's the application on that? Well, how quickly life can change from a still starlit night to a raging storm in an instant. You can have a peaceful sunny day and all of a sudden a storm can hit out of nowhere. We all know this is to be true. We've experienced this in our lives. It could be one phone call from the doctor. The blood workers come back and there's something wrong and they tell you there's something wrong and all of a sudden there is a storm in your life. Or somebody that you know and love has a cancer diagnosis and the storm is on you out of nowhere. Or you're pregnant and you're at an appointment and they're doing the ultrasound. The ultrasound technician is trying to listen for the heartbeat and something's wrong and they race to get the doctor. The doctor comes back and says the baby has died and the storm is upon you in an instant. How quickly life can change. So this is what I would say. If God is giving you starlit nights and peaceful days right now with very little suffering, what what do we do? I've talked about this a lot, but I would say we do not want to squander those days. We want to be cultivating deep thanksgiving to God for the peaceful sunny days that he gives us. Cultivating deep thanksgiving. We want to be abounding in thanksgiving. That's the passage we just read from Colossians chapter 2. Cultivate deep thanksgiving. But we also want to be filling our lives with things that will strengthen our faith. We want to be absolutely assured of the trustworthiness of God on the sunny days because when that phone call comes, when the storm hits, we want to have our faith strengthened. We don't want to be accused of having little faith. Now, of course, it doesn't mean when the storm comes, it doesn't mean we don't weep. It doesn't mean we don't cry. It doesn't mean we don't pour out our souls to God. David in Psalm 60, every night I wet my bed with, with tears. It doesn't mean we don't weep. But what it does mean is that we, we trust God through all of the storm, through the tears. We know that God has good and wise purposes for this storm, and we do not fear. We do not give in to worry and anxiety. Point number two, the disciples' response to the storm. The disciples' response to the storm. Verse 24 of our text, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Different commentators talked about this, but here's one commentator. He said, The Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level, and it is not uncommon for the cold winds of the western mountains to rush down and whip the waters of the lake into raging violence. So it's 680 feet below sea level, some big mountains to the west, cold air comes rushing through, comes down, combines with the warm air coming off the Sea of Galilee. You can have a massive storm rise up out of nowhere. To this day, this, this kind of thing still happens. And we know that this is what happened because Luke's gospel says, Luke 8, middle of verse 23 says, and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. John Piper, when he was a teenage boy, he went deep sea fishing uh, with his father and they were way off the coast. They couldn't see land anywhere. They were enjoying the time, deep sea fishing. And all of a sudden, it began to get dark, and it began to rain, and then it got darker, and it began to rain harder. 
And so he said all of the people on that boat huddled under this little canopy on this small vessel. And John Piper, as a teenage boy, turned to the captain and he said, Captain, are we in danger? And Piper said his answer, the captain's answer, perplexed him at first, but has then since made perfect sense. The captain said, no, we're, we're not in danger. The rain is not a problem. The boat is designed to handle the rain. The rain will simply wash off the boat. But then he said the perplexing thing to Piper at the time. He said, the real danger is the wind. The wind is the real problem. And Piper said that as he thought about it, it made perfect sense because when there is wind, there is waves. And waves are what pose a problem to these vessels on the sea. And that's exactly what happens to the disciples. The wind comes rushing down and all of a sudden you have massive waves seeking to capsize this boat. And so we know the disciples' response to the storm is that they are afraid. Jesus says to them in verse 26, and Jesus said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So they are fearful. And this must have been a particularly ferocious storm because there are some of these men are seasoned fishermen. They've been all over the Sea of Galilee. They know every nook and cranny, and yet they are terrified for their lives. They must have never seen a storm like this storm. Borrowing this from another pastor, but he said, do you think that the disciples huddled together quietly and they sort of whispered to each other, who, do, who wants to go wake up Jesus? Peter, do you want to go again? Maybe James, James, why don't you go back then? So James heads over to Jesus, nudges him a few times, and says, Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus, would you mind uh, getting up whenever you get a chance? Could you come out here and see? There, there's a little bit of a problem out here. There's a storm out here. Do you think that's what happened? No, of course not. These disciples were panicked. They raced back to Jesus in a panic, and they say, save us, Lord. We are perishing. I think in Luke's gospel, it's, uh, it's master, master, we're, we're perishing. And we'll look at Mark's gospel in a minute. They're absolutely terrified. As the waves crashed over the boat, what happened is they passed the point where their personal know-how was sufficient. They tried everything that they could, and they know that this is too big for us. This storm is too big for us. We need help to handle this storm, and they raced to Jesus. One pastor said, sometimes God has to bring us to desperation to get our attention, doesn't he? They had run out of solutions, they had run out of answers, and they run to Jesus. So, it's so true in our Christian lives. We think we've got it, we think we're doing well, and we grow proud and prideful, and God puts us in a situation where we cannot handle the situation on our own. What does it do? It drives us back to the Lord. So the disciples are driven to the Lord in desperation. They're sinking, they're dying. Disaster is upon us, save us, Lord. Just a little side point, R.C. Sproul said something like this. He said, wouldn't it be wonderful if all the unbelievers in the world would say to Jesus, save us, Lord we are perishing. That would be wonderful indeed. So what's some application that we can draw from, from this point of the disciples' response to the storm? Well, we can certainly fault their faith. They should have had stronger faith. We can fault their faith. But to whom did they turn when the storm came? They turned to Jesus. So are we in a storm? We should run to Jesus. We should cry out to Jesus. Another commentator said it was right for the disciples to turn to Jesus in their peril. So should we. Let us take our Fears to him. I've quoted this before. James Boyce said, Happy is the Christian who has learned to turn to Jesus first in times of trouble. And that's what we should do. Turn to Jesus first in times of trouble. That's the commendable thing that they did. They, they took their fears to Jesus. I mentioned Luke's gospel. Now, Mark's gospel. This is what Mark's gospel says. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They say, Master, Master, we're perishing. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And at least one of them, or maybe multiple of them, said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? St. Clair Ferguson calls this question the harshest question that was ever asked to Jesus in the New Testament. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The harshest question that was ever asked to Jesus, according to Ferguson, what happens to them? Their, their boat is filling with water. They're away from the storm. I mean, they're away from the shore. There's a massive storm, dark night. This begins to eclipse what they learned of Jesus in the bright of day. 
And they begin to accuse Jesus of lack of love. Clearly, you don't care that we're perishing, Jesus. That's the sense of what they're saying. Well, the storm has clouded their vision of the love of Christ. They can't see Jesus' care for them and love for them, so they accuse him of lack of love. The storm came between them and Jesus' care for them. Now, again, before we jump all over the disciples, I would simply say, the last time you faced a, a massive storm in your life, how did we handle that storm? Did we respond by fully trusting God? Or did we give in to anxiety and fear and worry? And have you ever said this, or maybe at least thought this deep down when you're going through some kind of deep suffering? Have you ever said, Lord, do you care? Do you not care about me? Have we ever said that to the Lord? So again, let's think about what they said. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The harshest question in the New Testament that was asked to Jesus, don't you care? Why is this such a harsh question that was asked to Jesus? Ferguson answers, he said, Jesus is in the world. He's taken on flesh to dwell among us. He's in this boat, and ultimately he's going to be destined for the cross because he cares for his people. Again, Ferguson says, how do you know the Lord cares when everything in your life is taken away? Everything in your life strips away from you. How do you know that he cares about you? How do you know he cares when that thing that you most fear to happen has happened? That worst trial that you ever thought about, when it hits your life, how do you know the Lord still cares about you? Well, the answer is that the Jesus who was with them in the storm was destined for a storm of his own, the worst of all storms, as he would endure the wrath of God against our sins. So the application here, again, more application would be when a storm comes into our lives and when we begin to give into fear and panic and worry, what is happening? That storm is clouding our vision of the love of Christ. It's clouding our vision of the cross of Christ. We do not want to let the storms and the trials of life get between us and the assurance of God's love for us. So again, on the sunny days of life, we want to cultivate thanksgiving. We want to remember the cross of Christ on the sunny days. We want to remember, be deeply assured that the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me, as Paul said. We want to sing about the cross and think about the cross and give thanks for the cross. So when that trial hits and you're in the middle of the trial, you can still see the cross through the clouds. He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will we not along with him graciously give us all things? We want to be cross-centered people in sunny days and in the trial. Don't ever want to accuse the Lord of lack of love. Here's what one pastor said. The storm into which Jesus led them while they are buffeted and rocked by the waves leads them to conclude he doesn't really love them. But the truth is, Jesus has led them into the storm precisely because he loves them. Not only is he here, he only is going to die on the cross. This very storm is evidence of his love and care for them because this storm is going to test where they were spiritually. They may have thought, we're doing pretty well spiritually, and this storm is going to reveal very quickly, no, you have little faith. You need your faith to be strengthened. It's going to reveal their lack of trust in God, and this storm is going to reveal the power and the majesty of Jesus in a profound way. Here's another commentator. He said, Though the disciples had no way to know it during those terrible moments, that storm was a divinely appointed vehicle to teach them about God and his power in their lives. This was essential for their spiritual development. This is a vital vital principle of spiritual life. Without difficulties, without trials, without stresses, we would never grow to be what we should become. Storms are part of the process of spiritual growth. I mean, this is so true. Storms are a part of the process of spiritual growth. I think Piper said something like this. He said, if you met a Christian who's been a Christian for many years and you ask them, when did you go really deep with God? Piper said, none of them will say on the sunny days of life. None of them will say that. They will all say it was through suffering. It was through pain and suffering that God drove me deep into himself. I thought about Jerry Edgar, 17 years old. He breaks his neck. He cannot move on the field. What does he think? I'm about to go deep 
with God, and he has through suffering. It is through suffering that we're going to grow. William Cooper has written a famous hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. It is a, it is a wonderful hymn and a powerful hymn. I've gone back to it, I, I don't know how many times. I've quoted parts of it. I've thought about lines of it many, many times over the last several months. It is a wonderful hymn. The most famous line of that hymn is this line that says, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You walk through this providence, it seems like a frowning providence. This is hard, this is difficult, trial that I'm going through, but behind it, God's face is smiling. He intends good for you in the trial. But the line that has moved me again and again from this hymn is this line. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread. The storm clouds that you so much dread. When that trial hits your life and you see these storm clouds and you dread them. You dread that storm, that suffering that's coming. Let me read this again. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread. Are big with mercy and shall break in blessings, plural, on your head. I would just say briefly that this is true. I mean, try to say it briefly. Walked through the worst trial of my life last year, and I would say, those clouds. I dreaded them, but they have been big with mercy and they have broken with blessings on my head. One pastor commenting on that line says this, The clouds that cover you this year may be darker than any you have yet known. They may linger long. They may seem to blot out the sun. But God knows how to take even these clouds and through them work wonders so marvelous, so unlooked for, that they leave us on our knees in worship. It is true. I have found that to be true. As gratitude has just come out of me, especially the last month or so. So when we begin to go through suffering, we want to race to Jesus. We want to be quick to turn to Jesus with our fears. We want to pray that the Lord will strengthen our faith on the sunny days of life. We don't ever want to accuse the Lord of lack of love. We want to remember the cross on the sunny days and in the storm. And when you begin to walk through suffering, when you see those storm clouds rise up on the horizon of your life, remember those clouds are big with mercy. They shall break with blessings on your head. Point number three, the response of Jesus to the storm. The response of Jesus to the storm. Verse 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. His first response is Jesus keeps on sleeping. He remains asleep. I love this. Why is he sleeping? I think he's sleeping for at least two reasons. Number one, I think he's sleeping because he, he's exhausted. One pastor told this story. He said he was teaching, I think he was in Russia. This was years ago. There was Christians there. I think they were relatively new Christians. They were hungry for the Bible, and he, they wanted him to teach the New Testament to them. And so he said he taught them 12 hours a day for six days in a row. And he said this wore him out. He said worse than if he was digging ditches. Teaching like this wore him out. And it came time for his flight back. And I think he was, had two different flights. He was flying from Russia to New York was the first flight. He said he got on the plane. He fell asleep, did not wake up a single time until they landed in New York, Second flight, the same thing. Long flight back home, he fell asleep the entire time because he was exhausted 
from doing ministry to others. I remember D.L. Moody one time in his life, he had done massive amounts of ministry that day. He came home to his bed. He said all he could say was in his prayer was, Lord, I'm exhausted. Amen. And he just crashed on his bed, totally zonked out uh, for the count. So you have this massive storm hits, winds and waves crashing over the boat. The disciples are terrified. Jesus is out for the count, sleeping the sleep of one who has spent every ounce of his energy in the service of others. I, I just love that. He spent every ounce of his energy in the service of others. That's Jesus' life. He goes around doing good. He exhausts himself doing good to others. He is absolutely worn out, so he sleeps in the storm. But, so here's some application even that. We, we see his humanity here. Clearly, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He, he's a true human being. He had a human body. He knows what it is to be weak and to be weary, to be tired, to be hungry, to be thirsty. Reminded me of Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The very next verse is we should boldly come to the throne of grace. So we should be encouraged to pray in light of this. He knows what it is to be weak and to be weary, doing good to others. But second thing, I think he sleeps because he has confidence and trust in God. He's so peaceful, one pastor said, that he doesn't even fear. Absolutely trusted the Father's care. Total absence of any fear. Oh, that we could live like that. We get tossed around by circumstances in our world, and we begin to mistrust God, and we panic. The heart of Jesus was perfect, calm. Jerry Bridges talks about this passage. He said he had given into the sin of anxiety for multiple days. I think two days in a row. I think when he traveled, he would get anxious. And he felt deeply convicted about his sin of anxiety, and he repented of that sin, and he came to his time of daily devotions, and providentially, he was in Matthew 8. And he came to our portion of Matthew 8, and he said he began to think about our text. And he said he was struck sort of by the disciples' panic and fear and Jesus sleeping, perfectly calm. And this is what he writes. He says, as I pondered that scene, the thought came to me, Jesus was asleep in the boat for me. What does he mean? Jesus was asleep in the boat for me. By that I mean that all that Jesus did in both his sinless life and sin-bearing death, he did as our representative and substitute. His perfect obedience as well as his death was all on our behalf. In contrast to my sin of anxiety, Jesus was never anxious. In far more desperate circumstances than mine, he fully trusted his heavenly Father. And I get the credit for it. By his death, he paid for the sin and guilt of my anxiety. And by his perfect trust, he clothed me with his righteousness. So Jesus was asleep in the boat for me. And this is just a wonderful way. Bridges is modeling something that's very helpful. When we repent of our sins, we can remember the gospel in this way. We can think, okay, I failed. I, I gave into the sin of anxiety. And we, we, we pray for repentance. But then, once you've prayed that, you can thank God for the active obedience of Jesus. You can say, specifically, that specific sin, Jesus never sinned. In this specific area where I failed, Jesus perfectly, fully obeyed. And I get the credit for that. I get clothed with his perfect righteousness. It's just a wonderful way to remember the gospel. And Bridges says this, So I left my time with God that morning not feeling guilty. Because of my persistent struggle with anxiety, but feeling encouraged because I knew my sin was forgiven. And instead, I had been credited with perfect obedience. In this case, the perfect trust of Jesus. So I went out into my day not only encouraged, but determined that by his grace, I would fight against my anxiety. So Jesus responds by sleeping. We see the two reasons why. Next, he responds by waking up to the cries of his disciples. Verse 25, and they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. So he responds by waking up to the cries of his disciples. And this is powerful. One pastor just said the winds and the waves could not rouse him. The storm did not disturb his exhausted sleep. But when the disciples cried out to him, he woke and went to their defense. Isn't that beautiful? The voice of the elements caused him no alarm, no concern. But the voice of his people in fear and distress elicit his immediate response. The application here is he always hears the cries of his people. Another encouragement for us to pray. He always hears the cries of his people. 
And he rebukes them. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith? Do you realize who's in the boat with you? Do you realize that I said we're going to go to the other side in Mark's gospel? You shouldn't have fear. Faith will cast out fear. He responds by waking up to the cries of his disciples. And notice that he he doesn't say, come back later when your faith is stronger, then I'll help you. He doesn't say that. He immediately goes to their defense now. Middle of verse 26. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Jesus responds to the storm by calming the storm. Not only is Jesus fearless before the fury of the storm, why should he fear what he controls? He takes charge. He goes in the offensive and he rebukes the winds and the sea. And notice he does not pray. He doesn't pray to God to calm the winds and the waves. No, he simply speaks to the storm. He rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. When Jesus commands, nature obeys. Jesus is clearly sovereign. This shows his divinity. Who can command the winds and the waves except for God alone? And there's this eerie Silence. All waters flow and cease to flow at God's simple command. One commentator had this beautiful sentence. He said, The winds and the waves were synchronized into solemn silence. Synchronized into solemn silence. He takes the frenzied sea and makes it a mirror of glass. What's some application that we can draw uh, from Jesus' response to the storm? The first one, I think, is that we should never think that we are truly alone in our trials. If you're a Christian, Jesus is in the boat essentially with you. He's promised that, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. It says in Hebrews, we should never think that we're alone in our trials. I think about the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4. He writes this, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And you have this beautiful verse, 2 Timothy 4, 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued in the lion's mouth. We're never alone in trials. No matter how dark it is, the Lord stands by and strengthens us. If you've ever studied John Patton's life, I mean, again and again and again, it's this promise that Jesus will be with you to the end of the age that strengthened Patton in unimaginable suffering. It was the promise that Jesus was with him, that sustained him. So we should never think we're alone in trials. We should be strengthened sort of by Jesus' providence, his, his control. He controls all the harmful things we fear, John Calvin said. He controls all the harmful things we fear, and those things are turning for our good. This should guard us against anxiety and fear and worry that he is in control. It should help us in adversities. And Jesus has the power over every storm. It doesn't mean he's going to calm every storm, but it, it does mean we can pray in Philippians 4. He'll give us the peace that passes understanding. It's a promise. I think J.C. Ryle talks about it. He can say to our troubled soul, peace, be still. And we can be stilled in the midst of a storm. Another pastor just said, the point here is that our Lord wants to teach his disciples that he can be trusted in the most threatening of circumstances. Point number four, the disciples' response to Jesus. The disciples' response to Jesus. Verse 27 of our text. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? They are given this incredible picture of his majesty, and they respond with amazement. To him here. They marveled and said, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? But I love Mark's gospel, which R.C. Sproul brings out in his book. But Mark's gospel says this it says they were fearful in the storm. But then it says, After the storm is calm, Mark 4 41 says, And they were filled with great fear. After the storm is calmed, they're filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So they're even more afraid after the storm is calmed. One pastor just said, if you were there, if we were there, and we said to them, why are you guys shaking? Why are you trembling with fear? The storm is over. It's peace. There's nothing to fear. And they would look at us and say, you don't understand. 
We're not shaking because of the storm. We're shaking because of Jesus. They were just sitting in this boat with a man named Jesus. Jesus stood up and spoke to the winds and the wave, and the winds and the wave respond to the voice of their creator. They're in the presence of the Holy One, and they're terrified. It's an Isaiah 6 type of moment. And then they say, what sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Well, we know the answer to that. He is the virgin-born Messiah who has come to redeem his people. He's come to save his people from their sins. His mission is to fulfill God's redemptive purposes. He is both God and man. He is Yahweh incarnate. He's the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Who is he? He's the Lord of glory, the maker and sustainer of all things, by whose words all things were made and at whose words all things immediately obey. To quote Sproul, he said, Here we have one who is worthy of our devotion. He is God incarnate, God who has authority over your life. My guess is that all of us in this room are going to have to walk through storms the rest of our life. Some storms will come into our lives before Jesus returns or before he calls us home to heaven. We're going to have to face various storms. I hope we've learned some, some things today. I hope we'll pray that our faith will be strengthened. I hope we'll respond by racing to him and seeing the cross. But there is one storm, the worst of all storms for us as believers that we will never have to face. It will never, ever touch us. And that's the wrath of God that Jesus fully quenched on the cross. The wrath of God will never, never, never fall on you if you trust in him because it fell on Jesus. So for us as Christians, we should sing with praise and thanksgiving here in just a minute. But if you're not a Christian, there really is a storm. It is horrible. It is really the worst of all storms that will come upon you if you do not repent and turn and trust in Christ. But the good news is that Jesus really did die on the cross for our sins. And if you turn and you rest in his finished work, you can be forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How is that possible? Because all that condemnation fell on Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, it's, it's an incredible passage of Scripture. I know it's just, I feel like I can't do it justice. It's just such a powerful passage. But Father, I pray that, that we will be able to apply some of what we've learned to our lives today. Help us to remember to be thankful, to cultivate thanksgiving on the sunny days of life. Help us to never take days for granted in our lives and help us to be cross-centered. Help us to remember the cross to be quick to sing of the cross, to think on the cross, to give thanks for the cross. So Father, when the the trials do come, help us remember that you have good and wise purposes for bringing storms into our life. This storm that you brought on the disciples, you brought out of love for them. And Father, may we never say that do you not care when we're going through storms. May that never be on our lips. But I pray that our faith would be strengthened and we would trust you and we would be unwavering in our trust in you no matter how deep the trial, no matter how deep the pain, Help us to remember that you have good and wise purposes for the suffering. And when we see those storm clouds rise up in our lives, help us to remember those words from that hymn, those clouds are big with mercy, and they shall break with blessings, plural, on our heads. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.